We're going to be in the Gospel of John today, John chapter 6, and we're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in order that the events happened, so that we can discover who Jesus really was, what he really taught, what he really did, and discover it for ourselves, see it in our own Bibles, so that we don't have to know Jesus secondhand, we can know him directly from his word. We've been in chapter 6 of John's Gospel for the past two weeks, and we're going to wrap that up this week. That's where we're going to pick up. Over the last two teachings, we saw Jesus miraculously feed what was most likely 10, 15, 20,000 people with one boy's dinner. It's now the next morning. Jesus has gone across the Sea of Galilee, this big lake from where he performed that miracle. He's back in his home base town of Capernaum. He's in the synagogue there, the Jewish church, and some of the crowd who witnessed the miracle on the other side of the Sea of Galilee have made their way across the lake to look for Jesus because they're interested in free breakfast. They are there, and assumedly there's some people who are just at the synagogue who are there as well, and they're going to continue Continue the dialogue. We found out last week that they're following Jesus as some type of wonderful magician, someone who's interesting and fascinating, but they're not really following him for his teachings. They're interested in the blessings, but they're not really interested in the blesser. Maybe when you grew up, you had like a crazy aunt who was really wealthy or something like that, and you were really nice to her. You weren't really interested in her, but you knew there was probably candy in it for you if you could make her think you were being nice to her. It's sort of that kind of idea. They're just hanging out for what they want to get from Jesus, not what he actually wants to give them, not his teaching, not the gospel. And this is all taking place at the high point of Jesus's ministry. Everywhere he goes, Thousands of people are flocking to him. This is hysteria. Everywhere he goes, he is just mobbed by the masses, generally for all of the wrong reasons, as we just said. Today, we're going to see Jesus do the logical thing, which is absolutely shred his own popularity. If Jesus had a PR person or an agent, they would be pulling their hair out, smashing their head on the table. They would be saying things like, Jesus didn't really say that. His Twitter account was just hacked. He didn't say that. That's what's going to go on today. They would have been mortified by what Jesus is going to say because it's completely counterintuitive to building a successful ministry. And it's an incredibly important teaching because it deals with something we hit on last time. And it's this. What is your motivation? What is my motivation for following Jesus? Why do we do it? That's a question every believer has to answer. And the further you get in life, the more you will find that a lot of the answers that may have worked when you were younger or more idealistic just don't work anymore. Answers like, I was raised in the church, don't work anymore. Well, my family were Christian doesn't work anymore. Every person has to address that issue. Why do you follow Jesus? And Jesus is going to walk us through that today. Let's begin in John chapter 6, verse 41. It says, The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. This is going to be the first fill-in on your outline. They're upset about Jesus claiming to be the bread that came down from heaven because by doing this, Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh, the Messiah. He's claiming to be God in the flesh, the Savior that the Old Testament prophecies considered to be the Messiah. So he's saying, I came down from heaven, and they're saying, the only way you came down from heaven is if you're the Messiah, and you're claiming to be the Messiah. No way, can't be the Messiah. They're offended. It's tragically ironic that when the Israelites were given bread from heaven in the wilderness called manna while they were escaping from Egypt and the Lord supernaturally fed them with this food substance called manna, eventually they got sick of that and they complained about that. So they complained about the physical bread from heaven. And here is Jesus, the spiritual bread from heaven, and they're complaining about him too. In verse 42, it goes on, and they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? The idea is, we know his family. He's not the son of God, he's the son of Joseph. This is sort of his hometown area, northern Israel, the region of Galilee. They're thinking, you can't be the son of God. We knew your dad. You're the son of Joseph. You're not the son of God. Come on. So they're rejecting Jesus based upon a fable, a popular belief. They think Joseph 
is Jesus' father. They think that they know all about Jesus and where he came from. But in reality, they have very limited knowledge about Jesus and where he came from. And this is one of the main reasons we're so passionate about studying God's word together. We want to know for ourselves who Jesus really is and what his word really says. Have you ever encountered someone who doesn't believe in God or is an atheist? I could also just add, have you ever been on the internet and uh, people will boldly make claims about Jesus as though they are absolute verified fact, even though they don't really have any idea what the Bible says and don't really know what they're talking about. They'll say things like, did you know Jesus never even claimed to be God? Well, you could read the Gospel of John where it happens over a hundred times. I mean, you could just read it. Or they'll say, there are no eyewitness accounts to Jesus, none. Well, there's actually four Gospels in the book of Acts, and they're the most verified historical documents in existence with the greatest number of source proof texts by a mile compared to anything. In the social media age we live in, have you noticed that ignorance is no excuse not to have an opinion? There's <laughs> no excuse to not have an opinion. You've got to contribute to the discussion somehow, even if you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> So when you encounter this in, in your life, please remember what we're studying today. If this issue could have been solved with apologetics, if Jesus could have refuted them, debated them, and changed their minds with apologetics, I think we could all agree that if that was the solution, Jesus would have done a better job than anybody. I mean, he's pretty intimately familiar with the source material being that the source material is him. So if apologetics and debate could have solved this, Jesus would have hit it out the park. But he doesn't get worked up. In fact, he doesn't even engage them. Take note of Jesus' response to their skepticism because their skepticism isn't rooted in a sincere search and longing for truth. Their skepticism is rooted in an unwillingness to believe. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. I don't have the Greek on this, but I'm pretty sure that's the godly way of telling people to shut up. <laughs> shut up. Why doesn't Jesus try and change their minds? Why doesn't he try and change their minds? Next verse, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So unless God the Father is supernaturally drawing someone to Jesus, they can't get it. It's just not a possibility. They are incapable of putting their faith in Jesus and being saved. So that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair. So how does God the Father determine who he draws and who he doesn't? We talked about this a little bit last week. I just want to hit one little angle on this that we didn't get to. Again, as we touched on last week, Romans 8. I put it on your outlines for you if you'd like to read along. It lays out the process of how this works. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And you're probably thinking, that's great, it's as clear as mud. Thanks for illuminating that, Jeff. I love these verses, and we're going to break it down because it's as close as we can get to how the mystery of salvation works. This is what it's saying. It's saying God the Father knows what each person is going to do with their free will. He knows how you will respond to the opportunity to come to Christ before you're even born. He knows what you're going to do with your free will. Him knowing what you're going to do with your free will in no way interferes with your free will. That's why it doesn't say those he predestined, he also predestined. They're two different words. Those he foreknew, he predestined, because they mean different things. Foreknew means he knew the future. He knew what you would choose to do. So knowing who would choose to follow Jesus, who would respond to the gospel, who would accept the invitation, out of that foreknowledge, God the Father sets a destiny for those who would choose to follow Jesus. He makes sure that they end up in the family of God. That's what Romans 8 is saying. He makes absolutely sure. There is no one, when everything is said and done at the end of time, there is no one who will not be a part of God's family who would have been if they had simply received the invitation. Romans 8 tells us every person who would respond to the gospel and the good news, God will make sure they end up in his family. He will make absolutely sure it happens. That's predestination. 
And when it says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, I love that because it's the truth that when Jesus rose from the dead, the idea is he would simply be the first of God's kids to be raised from the dead. You and I became adopted sons and daughters when we decided to give our lives to Christ and to follow him as our Savior. And so upon our death, we too will be raised from the dead to eternal life, just as Jesus Christ was. We'll be his brothers and sisters, the Bible says. So if God knows you choose to receive Jesus, he predestines it to happen. And he does that by calling you, drawing you and I to Jesus. And when he calls us and we respond, he justifies us is the next step it says there. That means he forgives all of our sin because Jesus paid for it on the cross in our place. And we are now justified. When I was a kid, somebody explained it to me. They'd say, you're justified just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified forever. And what's the end of the process? It's the best part will be glorified, will be changed in every way in eternity. This is the part that blows my mind, to people who bear a resemblance to Jesus Christ. I've said this before, we will be family members, brothers and sisters. When people look at Jesus and look at us, it will be obvious and apparent that we are part of the same family. That's mind-blowing. That's absolutely incredible. As I always like to point out, six packs for every guy in heaven. It's a good thing. Don't work too hard at it now. It's coming. I promise it's coming. So the reason I share all that is to help us understand why Jesus doesn't engage and debate with these people, why he doesn't beg them to change their mind, why he doesn't plead with them to follow him. Instead, in verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he's basically saying, and it's kind of obvious that the Father is not drawing you guys right now. It's obvious. So, so why, why get worked up about it? Verse 45, Jesus goes on and he says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. All Jesus is telling the crowd is, listen, everything in the Old Testament points to me. This crowd is pretty much a Jewish crowd. They all would have been raised in the scriptures, the Old Testament, the over 300 prophecies about Jesus. He says, listen, if you were sincere when you were studying the Old Testament, the scriptures, you would recognize me now. You would recognize me if you were sincere in your pursuit of truth. You'd put two and two together and realize that I'm the Messiah, the Savior that was promised throughout the whole Old Testament. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, talking about himself. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, this is one of those verily verilies or truly trulys. Most assuredly, I say to you, and I want you to underline this. This is huge. He who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Verse 47 is so precious because it's not a promise. It's a factual statement from the mouth of Jesus, the mouth of God. How are we saved? By believing in Jesus to save us. And if we believe what happens, we receive everlasting life, life without end that cannot be taken from us even in our earthly death. But notice this, when do we receive everlasting life? When we die? When we live holy enough lives to gain it in the end? If we don't lose it along the way? No. Jesus speaks in the present tense when he says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Has everlasting life. If you believe in Jesus to save you, you and I have everlasting life. Present tense, right now. As we pointed out last week, and if it's everlasting life and you can lose it, then it's not everlasting life. He says, you have it right now. So write this on your outline. Eternal life begins at the moment of salvation, the moment you give your life to Christ. Eternal life begins at the moment of salvation. You have it. We have it. That is so precious. So how do we know we have it? How do you know you have eternal life? There's no membership card. Well, I mean, I have one. You probably don't. But No, no, no. There's, there's really no membership card. How do you know you have it? We know we have it because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives and creates an appetite 
for the things of God. The Holy Spirit does some wonderful things in our lives, but his presence is also meant to assure us of the truth that we have everlasting life. In the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says it like this, in him you also trusted, that means believed, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the what? He's the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the day our earthly life ends, to the praise of his glory. I love that the word guarantee is in there. He who believes in me has everlasting life. Praise God for that. Verse 49, Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. We hit on this last time too. In, in Israel's history, there was this time when God had freed them from slavery in Egypt. They rejected God, worshipped an idol as soon as they got out of Egypt. So God had them wander around the wilderness for 40 years, enough time for the wicked generation to die out and try again with the next generation. During that time, he sustained them with this miracle food from heaven called manna that the Lord made appear. And Jesus points out all of that manna, that physical bread that fed your fathers back in the desert, uh, yeah, that didn't really solve all of their problems. He says it very bluntly. Jesus says, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, they ate it and they're all dead, right? I mean, they still died. So it was good, but it wasn't that good. Because last time I checked, they're all still dead. Jesus hadn't come to earth to make their lives more convenient. Jesus didn't say, people come gather to me. I have come to save you from weekly trips to the grocery store. Free food for everybody forever. Hallelujah. Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to make their earthly lives more convenient. He came to deal with our eternal needs, to solve the ultimate issues of sin and death. And he's making the point, anything I do for you here on the earth, you're still going to die if I just solve your earthly problems. Do you not realize that you need help with bigger things? Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is saying the real bread that comes from heaven. He's talking about himself. You eat it, you never die. You live forever, unlike the temporary physical bread that came to your fathers in the wilderness. He's making a contrast. Anyone who receives Jesus will not die. It's quite a claim. It's quite a claim, and only Jesus could make it. Today, all around us, maybe even in your own life, the temptation always exists to make our earthly, temporary needs the most urgent thing in our lives. People spend their whole lives chasing and working for manna, but those people will all still die one day. Every single one. I guarantee it. But no amount of manna, no amount of earthly food or cash can meet a man's greatest need, peace with God eternal life, membership in the family of God, forgiveness, grace, hope, peace. No amount of manna will get you those things. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He's the living water. He's the bread from heaven, and he satisfies forever. If your life is about chasing manna, it will not make you live forever. It will not make you live forever, and it won't satisfy there is no darker place a man can reach than to acquire everything he thought he wanted and find that he is still not satisfied. I don't know that there's a darker place a human being can be. I think that's darker even than the lowest depths of poverty because you have nothing left to hope for or in. Only Jesus satisfies. To put you in the headspace of the people that Jesus is talking to at this time, you got to realize they're still thinking physical bread like a loaf of bread. So they still don't understand that Jesus is using bread as a metaphor to describe himself and his mission to the earth. They think Jesus is going to produce better literal bread that will make them immortal. They think that Jesus is going to go, you need bread that will make you live forever. You need this bread. Like he's going to whip it out and just show them, oh, give me that. That would be great. So Jesus makes it clear again what he means. And it just flummoxes, it befuddles, it confounds, it confuses these people. Jesus says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give, I want you to underline give, is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. 
And I had you underline give because I just love that. That it wasn't taken from Jesus. Jesus would later say, no man takes my life from me, but I freely lay it down. Jesus came to give his life for us. He's teaching a spiritual truth, but the people still think he's talking about material things. Back in verse 47, Jesus said, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Jesus made it clear that this is the key to the whole metaphor. You can write this on your outline. Believing is equal to eating and drinking. That's the metaphor. Eating and drinking equals believing. Believing equals eating and drinking. That's the whole metaphor. It's not rocket science, but because of their hard hearts, they just can't get it. Verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're only confused because they're incapable of believing, because the Father is not drawing them to Jesus, because he knows they wouldn't choose to receive Jesus. So they're thinking, well, this thing just took an awkwardly cannibalistic turn. Killing yourself and asking people to eat you is, um, is not a good way to grow your following Jesus. It's not, it's not a good way to do it. But if they were all thinking that way, they'd be in agreement. Did you notice that they were quarreling among themselves? They were arguing. So this tells us that some people in the crowd were starting to get it. Some were starting to get it. Next up, the most controversial set of verses in the entire Gospel of John. Let's read verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever." Sort of get the gist that he finishes this and the people go. <clears throat> well, that was awkward. What hits me about this is that Jesus doesn't tone down his message for his audience. Jesus doesn't say, we might have some non-believers here. We might have some first-time guests and this could be hard to hear. I don't really want to freak anybody out by talking about my blood, so let's, let's just skip that. Jesus wasn't really what you would call seeker-sensitive. The gospel is offensive and violent. The gospel is offensive and violent. And let me explain. Any way you slice it, this is the gospel. You and I have rebelled against God and rejected God and chosen our way over his. Every single one of us. We're unable to save ourselves, unable to live up to the standard of God, which is perfection. We've all blown it and none of us can fix it. We're all guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Even if you're a good person, you're guilty when the standard is perfection. We're all in a hopeless situation destined to be punished for eternity for our sins at rejection of God. Punishment that, by the way, we deserve since there can be no higher crime than rejecting God. How many of you know that might offend somebody? The solution God provides is not us being good people so that we can take credit for it because there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. His solution is to send his own son, Jesus, who was violently tortured and crucified and murdered. And those things should have been done to us. Everything that happened to Jesus was a picture for us to see that should have happened to us for eternity. We deserve that. Then he rose from the dead, turning the cross from a symbol of oppression to a symbol of victory and hope and eternal life. The blood of Jesus made a way for us to have peace with God and be brought into his family. That might offend somebody. That might be difficult to hear for somebody. But it's the truth. It's the truth. And we can never be ashamed of it individually or collectively as a church. It's our hope. It's our glory. And it's the truth. Don't ever cringe if we talk about the blood of Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed of what Jesus did for us and for you. And don't ever try to hide it in the name of reaching people. Because Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. And now for our weekly controversy. So this portion of scripture, and just hang, hang with me, hang with me on this, because I'm going to cling to the word of God here, and I need to correct a massive misconception on this text, and I'm going to do it by clinging to the word of God. So if this starts offending you, 
the question you need to ask is, am I saying or pointing out anything that is not in the word of God? I may offend your tradition. I may offend your upbringing. But you need to ask yourself, have I offended the word of God? If I have, then you can walk out and leave. If I haven't, then you can be offended, but you need to change. Because God's word is right. That's a good disclaimer. I got you all right now. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so this portion of scripture we read. This is where the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation comes from. This is a word that you can throw out there to uh, impress your friends at parties, but I'll tell you what transubstantiation is. It's the doctrine that when you take communion, it is literally transformed into the body and the blood of Jesus. It literally, physically, can't be more clear than that, changes into the body and the blood of Jesus as you take it in. That's the belief. Uh, in transubstantiation. And as you've hopefully realized, Jesus has not been talking about communion at all. He's talking about the necessity of his flesh and blood being poured out to death to gain us eternal life spiritually and the reality that we have to believe that in order to receive him. Even if you thought Jesus was talking about communion, you have to remember that communion isn't even a thing yet. It doesn't exist at this time in the ministry of Jesus. Communion is first instituted at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus is crucified, in what's known as the upper room. He has that final dinner with the 12 disciples, and there he goes through the ritual of communion, explaining to them that the bread represents his body and the wine represents his blood. So if you believe Jesus is talking about communion here, you believe that the first time Jesus gave us the gift of communion, he did it to a hostile crowd of strangers rather than his innermost intimate circle of friends. Rationally, there's no reason for transubstantiation as Jesus just told us that if we believe in him, we have already received eternal life by believing in him. As we said earlier, in this metaphor, believing is represented by eating and drinking. Jesus explains it even further in verse 58 when he says, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna, so not physical bread and are dead. He who eats this bread spiritually will live forever. He's been making a point about the difference between physical and spiritual as he's pointed out repeatedly the solution for everlasting life is spiritual bread, him not physical bread. He's gone out of his way to point out that physical bread, manna, did not solve that problem. Anybody know someone who's 2,000 years old? No, of course not. This is how we know Jesus was talking spiritually. Because the disciples, even though they had communion with Jesus Christ themselves, all died here on the earth. But they've lived forever spiritually, not physically. He's not talking about physical acts of eating and drinking. All the way back in the book of Leviticus, it's this Old Testament book full of the laws of God. It spoke about eating and drinking blood. And before we read what it says, I need to remind you what Jesus said about the Old Testament law and himself. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus himself says, I didn't come to trash all the Old Testament laws. I came to follow them all perfectly and fulfill the law perfectly. Jesus always did everything in perfect unity with God's word and the Old Testament law. So keep that in mind as I read to you from Leviticus. This is God speaking. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you. He gave us his blood. Where? To drink? No. Upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood on the altar not drinking it. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So Jesus would be in complete disobedience to his own law if he were giving the instruction to drink his blood literally and physically. God said, I will set my face against the person who eats blood. We heard Jesus say, I'm the bread of life. It's just one of the major I am statements that he makes in the gospel of John. Later on, he will say, I am the door. Could it be that when Jesus says that, he is telling us that he is really made of wood? Later on, Jesus will say, I am the vine. So could it be that he is not only made of wood, but he has branches and leaves as well? 
He will say, I am the way. Could he be telling us that he's actually a path, a wood tree chopped up and laid down in a path that we're to walk? Of course not. All this is ridiculous. We understand that in all his other I am statements, he is speaking in spiritual metaphors. He's the spiritual door. He's the spiritual vine. He's the spiritual way, just as he's the spiritual bread of life. And don't miss this. If Jesus was talking about communion, then what would this text actually be teaching? The text, if this was talking about communion, would be teaching that you are saved, you receive everlasting life by taking communion. That's what the text would mean if we take this to be about communion. But Jesus has said repeatedly, the way you receive everlasting life is by believing. So the issue, transubstantiation, was one of the main issues that sparked the historical event known as the Reformation. Catholic priests like Martin Luther and John Calvin began to study the Bible for themselves, and they found that what was in the Bible was really the complete opposite of what the Vatican happened to be teaching at the time. And that was just one of the issues that sparked the Reformation, but that's a completely different, huge, historical, and very worthwhile study I'd encourage you to do on your own. But it's a principle we've talked about before. Church tradition, the traditions of man, are not more important or sacred than the Word of God. When we discover that we have a tradition that does not line up with the Word of God, we change the tradition, not the Word of God. We need to remember that. And when God's word is being falsely represented as believers, we can't just say, oh, well, different strokes for different folks. We can't do that. This is far too important because this is Jesus. This is his word. This is the Lord that we're talking about. And I don't think Jesus would ever say to us, you know what? If a little blasphemy helps you guys be united, just go for it, man. What's a little blasphemy between friends, right? I mean, you play in the same softball league, so just just roll with it. In reality, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation makes an idol out of communion, and then that idol is worshipped. It's not a different way of doing church. It's actually blasphemous, and I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that to pick a fight. If you're Catholic or you come from a Catholic background, I would just encourage you to look at what the Word of God says and make your own determination based upon the Word of God. I don't enjoy, by the way, pointing out controversial things, I've never read a book on church growth strategy that encourages you to do that. I don't do it because I think it's a great idea, and I don't do it to bash Catholics or anybody else. I have an obligation, though, to point these things out when they come up in the text. So if you're thinking, why would you choose to talk about that? Well, because it came up in the text. It was the next thing that came up in the text. Let's go back to verse 54. It says this, Jesus says, "'Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood,' has eternal life. And then you might see this phrase that you've noticed before, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the fourth time in John 6 Jesus has used that phrase, raise him up at the last day. What is Jesus talking about? Without doing a whole separate study, the simple answer is Jesus is talking about the last day of each man or woman's life on the earth. And he is saying anyone who believes in me on the last day of their life, they'll be raised up to eternal life instead of to eternal death. We won't be lost. We'll live forever with Jesus. And I think he points that out four times because he really wants us to get it. Whenever the Bible is redundant or repetitive, it's because they want us to understand something. And I think it's because Jesus knows that people in the crowd are going to find what he's asking them to do very difficult. So he stresses, guys, I'm giving you the gift of eternal life, victory over death. And you need to keep that at the forefront of your mind as you process all these things. So before you just say, is this easy or hard to do? you need to keep in mind, he's giving me eternal life. He's giving me eternal life. And that will usually adjust your perspective. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard, your Bible might say offensive or difficult. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? You need to underline hard or difficult or offensive, however your Bible says it, because the original word is much more uh, along the lines of offensive. It makes it clear that the real issue wasn't that it was hard to understand for them. It was that they found it offensive. They didn't want to embrace the teaching. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Jesus is saying, listen, if this offends you, If you find this hard to take, 
how are you going to deal with the fact that I haven't come to lead a military uprising against the Romans? I've come here to go back to heaven via death on a cross. I haven't come to lead you to military victory. I've come to die for you and for the whole world. And then after that, I'm going to ascend back to heaven. So you think this teaching is difficult? You ain't seen nothing yet. We're just getting started. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's exactly how his time on the earth would end with what's known as the ascension, where he would return to heaven. And while this teaching is offensive here on the earth, you know, it's not offensive in heaven. In fact, it's celebrated. And the disciples who were with Jesus when he ascended back to heaven would see heaven open its gates and welcome Jesus in, celebrating what he had accomplished on the earth. And in that moment, it's recorded that none of the disciples said, this is offensive. This is offensive. And you know why? Because it's true. It's true. It's undeniably true. And this hits on one of the great principles that anyone seeking truth must understand. I don't care if you're a believer or not a believer. This applies to you. If you are sincerely seeking truth, you want to know, does God exist? You want to pursue that question. Is Christianity real? The question is never, is this offensive? The only question is, is this true? The question is not, is this offensive? The question is, is this true? There's only one way to heaven, and it's Jesus. Almost everyone asks the wrong question in response to that statement. The first question most people ask is, is this offensive? Yes, this is offensive, because if Jesus is the only way to heaven, then a lot of people are wrong, and I'm offended by that. You didn't ask the right question first. The right question is, is it true? Is it true? Ironically, it's the most scientific approach to the issue. It's not about your feelings or whether it's offensive or politically correct. The question is, is it true? And this is not unique for unbelievers. We do this as believers as well. We find out something that Jesus wants us to do that's laid out in his word, and we don't want to do it. So instead of asking, is it true, we say, does this offend me? Does this offend my desires? Does this offend my flesh? Does this offend my will? Very easy for us to do the same thing. Jesus is saying, guys, you're asking the wrong questions. You're concerned with the wrong issues. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. You want to underline that. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. The flesh, the physical, profits nothing. It'll gain you nothing if you put your hope in it. The spirit, the spiritual, man, it gives life. And guys, the words I speak to you are spirit that give life. The words I speak to you are spiritual. Jesus is telling us this whole passage, this whole teaching has been spiritual in nature. Is there any confusion over the fact that Jesus has been talking spiritually and not physically? That's extremely clear. When Jesus uses the metaphor of being the bread of life, he does so intentionally because when you eat and drink, the things you consume go into the deepest parts of you and ultimately all of you. That's why some of us look the way we do, right? It's the harsh truth. When we receive Jesus, when we receive Jesus, he goes into the deepest parts of our being and the totality of our being spiritually. Just as we eat and drink and all of it finds its way into every cell of our bodies, so Jesus spreads into all of our lives. It's a picture of salvation. And what Jesus is telling the crowd and most of the crowd is rejecting is the teaching that coming to Jesus is like eating. You receive him into your life. He goes into the deepest parts of your life, every part of your life, and affects it. The crowd wanted Jesus in a couple of select parts. They wanted Jesus to give them free food and overthrow the Romans, but they didn't want him all up in all of their business. They didn't want him in all of their lives. Much like us, if we're not careful, we want Jesus in certain parts of our lives, the parts where we're doing poorly, the parts where we need help, but we don't want him to come into all of our lives. And Jesus is telling the crowd, guys, it's all or nothing. And that was highly offensive to them, highly offensive. And we're doing the same thing when we say, Jesus, I want you to come into these areas of my life. Don't touch my money. Don't talk to me about how I spend my money. We're saying, don't come into my whole life. Or if Jesus is saying, I want to talk to you about your relationships. I want to talk to you about that secret sin that you're addicted to. Or I want to talk to you about the way you do business. I want to talk to you about the way you talk to people, the way you talk to your spouse. 
And the response is, nah, I don't want to talk about that. That's saying, I want the free bread. I want the salvation. I want the blessings. But I don't want you my whole life. Not my whole life. Verse 64, Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. It's a whole different study, but Jesus is just telling us real quickly here that he knew all along that Judas would betray him. And yet he brought him into his inner circle because it's what the Father asked him to do. It was part of the plan. Jesus knew Judas's heart, and he knew everyone who would not believe in him. Verse 65, and he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my Father. Just reinforcing that truth we've heard him say before that nobody can believe unless the Father draws him. As a point of Bible trivia, you might find this interesting. We know what John 3.16 says. This is really fascinating because chapters and verses weren't assigned to the Bible till hundreds of years after it was actually written. And uh, trends began to change and people didn't actually have the entire Bible memorized anymore, so they had to put in chapters and verses. Interesting what verse falls on John 6.66. From that time... Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. It's not talking about the 12, but probably some of the 70 or the 120. They left Jesus when he said this. And the idea is they didn't leave for a while and come back. They're like, we're done. We're not following this guy anymore. As your pastor, I need to make sure that every single one of us understands this. If I fail in this area, I failed you completely as your pastor. The people here are called disciples. That's scary. They're walking with Jesus. They're taking notes as he teaches. They're discussing what he's taught, observing the miracles he's done. They're doing their best to be with him everywhere. And yet here, it's made clear that they're not saved. They're not saved. They're not part of the family of Jesus. They don't believe Jesus actually is who he says he is. You know, you can go to church. You can learn the Bible. You can take notes. You can read the Bible every day, and you can still not be saved. Well, why? Well, Jesus gave us a graphic explanation. These disciples all leave because they were unwilling to receive Jesus into all of their lives. All of them, the whole deal. Jesus is more impressed with the person who only knows a little bit about him, but is doing their best to faithfully live it out. Living in surrender to what they know about God. He's way more impressed with that person than the person who knows the Bible inside and out, the historical context, the Koine Greek, who knows it all, and yet their life has not had any of it applied. Or they have these glaring areas where they've clearly said, I know what the Bible says, I know what it is in the original language, I'm just not going to do it. God's more impressed with the person who knows a little, who is responding to the knowledge they have, than the person who knows it all and is rejecting the truth that they've been given by the Lord. The issue is not knowledge. The issue is, have you taken Jesus into your whole life? Have you invited him in? Does he have free reign to work on anything he wants to work on? These disciples didn't like that offer, so they left. Just like those who leave the faith or leave the church when they learn that God is requiring something of them that they don't want to do. Don't be alarmed when that happens. It happened to Jesus. I'm not a better preacher than Jesus. It's going to happen here too. It will. It's an inevitability. They want Jesus in specific parts of their lives, but not all of their lives. They're disciples in name, but not in truth. And I believe that this same issue is going on in the church today. I'll be very blunt, especially in the area of sexual sin. seems like half the church, not this church, the church, capital C, is pushing for a theology where you can be a Christian but tell Jesus to stay out of your sexual life. I love Jesus, but my porn addiction is my business. It's my business. I love Jesus, but who I hook up with, that's my business. I love Jesus, but, but how a godly relationship is defined, that's my business. And much of the church, out of a desire to make people who don't believe in Jesus feel welcome in the church, is eager to tell them, you're right, that's fine, that's fine, Jesus is cool with that. I think this church would grow a lot faster if we did that. But here's the problem. If I taught that, I would be making an offer on the behalf of Jesus that Jesus is not making. I would be making an offer on the behalf of Jesus that Jesus is not making. 
I'd be lying to people. Jesus said it's all or nothing. That mindset in the church and as believers is like me going to a car dealership and saying, I heard you had slumping sales at this Mercedes dealership. Have you considered lowering the cost of the vehicles? Because if you would only charge like $1,000 a car, you would have tons of customers. Their answer would be, it costs what it costs. In the church, there's this modern-day theological clash going on where many people are saying, hey, you know how we can get more people in the church? Just lower the cost. Just lower the cost. Jesus says, here's the problem. The wholesale, the wholesale price that was paid for what you're offering, salvation, the wholesale price was my blood and my life. That's why it's not cheap. That's why Jesus has the right to very reasonably ask for all of us and reject anything less. Because the price he paid to be able to offer this is the highest price that has ever existed or ever will. It's the life of Jesus, the Son of God. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't chase after them after they walk away? He doesn't chase after them. He says, well, well I'll, give you, I'll give you two exceptions. You take two areas of your life, do whatever you want. He doesn't do that. Why does he just let them walk away? Because as much as they're not interested in a Lord that will come into every part of them, Jesus is not interested in anything less than every part of them. He is not interested in anything less than every part of them. He's not interested in the person who says, save me from hell, but I don't want you in the rest of my life. What Jesus is saying is, the offer you're asking for does not exist. I get why you want it. It meets all your selfish desires. But that is not what I'm offering. And this doesn't mean we become instantly perfect. It's not, it's not what happens. It's not about becoming instantly perfect. It means that immediately, upon putting your faith in Jesus, you have made the decision to care more about honoring him than honoring your earthly passions. And that can happen in a moment. It means that we welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It means that we say yes to God, even if we're not sure how we're going to live it out yet. Yes, yes, Lord. Above all else, it's a commitment to pursue Jesus above anyone or anything. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. I still do every day. But wherever you are in your relationship with God, he can be your highest priority today. It's not about perfection. It's about priority. It's not about perfection. It's about priority. Tim Keller says, God invites us to come as we are, not to stay as we are. Everybody loves the invitation, come as you are. But many people will leave when they hear Jesus isn't cool with us staying the way we are. He said, I brought you in to bring you into this process. I justified you to glorify you, to make you like Jesus. Verse 67, I love this interaction. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him. This is why we love Peter, because he had some low moments, but man, did he have some high moments. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Peter gets it. Peter gets that the offer of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, membership in the family of God, he gets that all of these things are more important than anything else. And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You're the only way. You're the only one who has eternal life. You're the son of God. There is no option. When it comes to the dividing line, you're either in or you're out. The crowd left. But Peter said, Jesus, we're all in. We're all in. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. It says, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You alone have the words that give eternal life. Peter realized there was no other way. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Peter understood that if that reality is true, this is Peter's train of logic, if Jesus is the only way to eternal life, then whatever that costs is ultimately irrelevant. It's irrelevant. He's saying, you're the only one that has eternal life, and we want it. 
And whatever that cost is really irrelevant because the offer is that amazing. It's that amazing. Here's what's interesting too. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he heals the crowd and he teaches the crowd. You see it everywhere he goes. The crowd follows him because of the miracles and the healings and most recently the free food. Peter was taking in what Jesus was teaching. And that's why he doesn't say you alone have the power or you alone have the miracles. Instead, Peter says you alone have the words of eternal life. Peter was more excited about what Jesus was teaching than the miracles that Jesus was doing. Peter realized that the offer of eternal life was a far greater miracle than anything Jesus was doing in the physical realm. Peter didn't receive eternal life because of the miracles he saw. Miracles don't ultimately produce faith. They just produce a hunger for more miracles. Peter received eternal life because of the words he heard Jesus speak. That's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. It's God's word that creates faith, which leads to eternal life. Miracles are awesome, and I pray all of our lives are filled with them. But miracles don't create faith. Faith creates miracles. God's word is what creates faith in us, just as it did in Peter. In John 8, 31, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. That's the dividing line. Are you a disciple of Jesus? He said, if you abide in my word, if you're in it, if you believe it, if you cling to my word rather than the blessings or the miracles, that's what makes you a disciple. So faith doesn't only come from his word, but maturity as well. And then remember this, back in verse 63, it says, it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Then I had you underline the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. If you're in the church, capital C, the big church, then sooner or later you will hear someone say something like this, probably on a Sunday here, or someone will come up to me and say, you know, I like your church, I just wish you had more of the spirit in your church. I just wish there was more of a freedom of the spirit. I long to see a, a greater move of the spirit, a greater freedom of the spirit. And when someone says that, they probably have some very specific ideas of things that they would like to see us doing. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus says, the words that I speak to you are spirit. So if you or I said to Jesus, I would like to see more of the Spirit in my life and my church, what do you think, based upon verse 63, Jesus would think you meant? Do you think Jesus would assume that you meant, we got to double the size of the band? That's what we need to do. From Jesus' perspective, the Spirit is moving wherever His Word is taught with reverence and diligence. From Jesus' perspective, the Spirit is moving wherever people actually respond to what His Word says. From Jesus' perspective, the Spirit is moving wherever His Word is given priority. And some of us might need a paradigm shift in this area. I, for one, am so thankful that I can experience the Holy Spirit, the Spirit moving simply by opening up the Word of God and reading it. The Spirit is moving. It's a lot easier than thinking, you know, the Spirit moves when the environment is just right, when there's just the right lighting, when the sound man isn't messing up the mix, and the band has finally chosen a good song, and there's no bad singers are standing around me. The stars align. The Spirit moves. So much easier to know, hey, listen, when I open up the Word of God, I say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? The Spirit moves. The Spirit is moving. Seems like that would be a far greater gift for God to give us than waiting for the stars to align before we can experience the move of the Holy Spirit. We need the words of Jesus to take them in, to feed on them. Write this down. Write this down. Where God's Word is active, God's Spirit is moving. Where God's Word is active, God's Spirit is moving. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? So when Peter says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, in the original language, we sort of get the idea that some of what Peter's actually saying is, Jesus, we're not like the crowd. We're smarter. We have greater insight. And we have deduced, because we are smarter than the average bear, that you are the Messiah. We figured it out. And in response to that line of thinking, Jesus says, did I not choose you? You chose me? Oh, I know, I chose you. It's this glorious mystery that God chose Peter. Peter can't take any credit for his salvation. And yet, while we must be chosen in order to be saved, Jesus himself points out that someone in the 12 was chosen 
who themselves chose not to respond to being chosen. He says, I chose the 12, but one of you is a devil. So I chose you, but one of you did not accept that I chose you. One of you rejected me instead. Who was that person? Verse 71, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. There's a whole teaching I could do on the last two verses. Don't hold your breath. I'm not going to do it. Be cool. It's okay. Because what we need to notice is this. As we said earlier, Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. That's staggering because throughout his three-year ministry, Jesus loved on Judas as one of the 12 disciples. When Jesus would wash the feet of the 12 disciples on the night of the Last Supper, Judas was among the 12 whose feet he washed. He washed the feet of Judas who, if you follow the timeline, within a couple of hours of doing that, would sell out Jesus to the Romans. One of the last things Jesus did was wash the feet of Judas, the man who would betray him. And when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for Judas as well. Jesus has love for everybody. He has forgiveness for everybody. But his love and his forgiveness must be received And Judas never chose to receive the forgiveness or the love of Jesus that he was offering. Write this down. It's your last fill-in. Salvation must be received. It must be received. Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you all in? Is Jesus the highest priority in your life? Jesus doesn't chase the crowd. He lets each person make their own decision. The worst delusion any of us could be under is thinking we're saved when we're not. It's the worst delusion we could be under. If you said yes to Jesus, but what you really meant is, I want to be saved, and then I don't want you in any of my business. I need to be blunt that Jesus did not agree to that deal. He did not offer that deal. And if that's the deal you said yes to, you're not saved. Because that's not how salvation works. It's all or nothing. Jesus is the only way. He's the only one who has eternal life. Giving him your life in exchange for eternal life is the most ridiculously unfair, lopsided deal that has ever existed or ever will exist. It's the divine exchange, your sin, your hopelessness for his righteousness and eternal life. I am thankful every day that Jesus offered me that deal. Every single day. I relive it because it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Jesus wants all of you. He deserves all of you. He deserves all of you. If your walk with the Lord is dry this morning, stop and ask yourself if you've been continually feasting on Jesus. One of the Greek verbs when it says whoever eats is a continual verb. It's an ongoing thing. Have you been continually drinking him in or did you do it once a while ago but now you've stopped? To take Jesus into every part of your life is to make him your go-to for satisfaction and fulfillment. Is something else your go-to? Have you been misled into chasing lesser things? If so, you need to return to the only one who can satisfy. And you can do that this morning. Seek him, allow him to fill you and refresh your spirit. And in part, Jesus chose the analogy of food because we never really forget to eat. Anybody here say, you know, for the last three days, I just kind of forgot. I just kind of overlooked it. We've all been eating something. We've all been eating something. And the idea is that we will all feed our hunger and our thirsts one way or another with something. Jesus tells us that when we receive everlasting life, salvation, when we choose to trust him, we're saying, Jesus, my hungers and my thirsts will be satisfied in you from now on. That's what I'm committing to. Our goal is to get to the place where our hunger for Jesus is as intense as our hunger for food. Some of you are like, that's not possible. That's just not possible. It can happen. That's the picture Jesus is giving. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? That first question I want to ask is simply, are you saved? Are you saved? Or have you never responded to Jesus even though he's chosen you? He's offered you salvation. He's died for you. He's offering you forgiveness and love. Membership in his family as a son or daughter of God. Have you said yes to that? Or did you say yes to being saved from hell but no to everything else? Maybe today 
you're ready to say, like Peter, I've realized there's nowhere else I can go. Every other well has run dry. Nothing else is satisfied. And I'm ready to confess, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. And I'm ready to give Jesus all of me. All of you for all of him. That's the deal. All in or nothing at all. Not about perfection, it's about priority. And you can walk out of here today with Jesus as your highest priority. And he'll go to work over time, making you more like him. If you have never made that decision and today you're ready to say, I want to be saved. I want to believe. I want that everlasting life. And I want it to begin now. And for the rest of us, if you are running dry, here's what I know from my own experience from myself. I run dry when instead of trying to be satisfied in Christ, I am trying to eat and drink other things. And I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because they don't satisfy. They leave me weary. They leave me tired. They leave me hungry and they leave me thirsty. This morning, what you need to do is you just need to repent of that. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for being foolish enough to try and satisfy myself anywhere other than in you. You ask him to fill you up today and he will. And then you walk out of here and you keep getting full of him. Because of the blood of Jesus, you have right now eternal life. You are justified. Your sins are forgiven. And that truth, your sins are forgiven, will be true tomorrow, the next day, the next year, the next decade. It's done. Would you just be still before the Lord for a moment?